Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. There are some messages that sort of lend themselves to uh, being a little more animated than others. Some things that would be a, a, what some old-fashioned preachers would call a stimwinder sermon. <laughs> and then there are other messages that are a little more intellectually deep and thoughtful, and it causes you to put on your thinking cap a little bit. So this is one of those slightly diving deeper intellectual you have to think about it kind of messages. But the problem is that when it gets to be a nice summery day and the blower stops blowing and we get comfortable, sometimes just thinking hard is enough to make you sleepy. So I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on and that if you hear somebody start to snore next to you, that you have my permission to just kind of tap them gently and then wake them up a little bit, and then I might find myself saying, are you still with me? And I'm, I'm looking for some feedback for you to be able to say, amen, pastor, or whatever it is that you would say in response to that. So that's, this is where we're diving today. This is diving into the doctrine of justification from Romans chapter 3, and I have uh, been thrilled with my study this week because even though I've been over that passage a number of times, there's still things that uh, I hope when I'm 75, 80, 85, 90, 105, that God's still going to be opening me up to new revelations of how to interpret His Word and to bring me closer to Him because there's so much. It's inexhaustible, and this is one of those inexhaustible passages that I continue to find things that blow my mind and help me appreciate the songs that we just sang today. And it helps me appreciate the study that Steve brought so eloquently in our adult growth encounter just before worship today as well. Neat to see how that dovetails together too. I think God's been up to something because sometimes when he gets ready to tell me something he wants me to get, he does it and he puts it on repeat and he just keeps locking it in there. So this is one of those things. So June 23rd, that's today. Just faith. Romans chapter 3. I do want you to turn in that passage in whatever form you brought your Bible today because I'm going to be reading through that passage and I'll be pointing out a couple of things that are basics in interpretation that will be helpful as we start to lay out the groundwork for this and then we'll unpack it. Just faith. There are three aspects of this that Paul gives us in just this small passage. That we are justified, made acceptable in God's sight by faith. That it's only by faith. So it's just by faith. So it's faith alone, nothing else. And there's that word just that comes into play there as well. And it's a just faith, which means it's a faith that works justice. We're going to cover these three today, mostly the first two. But then next week, we're going to pick up James and find out why it's a just faith. Because James is speaking a little different facet of this. And he's not trying to contradict Paul. He's not saying... Paul, buddy, you got it wrong when you said that we're only saved by grace. He's saying, if we are saved by grace, and we are, 
then our faith is going to overflow naturally into works of justice for other people and that our good works will reveal the faith that we were saved by, which is by grace. They're both complementary, they're not contradictory, and so we're taking Paul today and James next week, and you get to see how the faith works itself out next week as well in a practical way. So, a raise of hands, please. This is a reminder to me to tell a story, but I'm also going to ask for you to have a raise of hands if you can remember back when you were in first grade. Remember that? Most of us? Good, good. Uh, I remember that because I did not go to school until the first grade. My mother, in a sense, homeschooled me. They didn't call it back then, homeschooling. That's just what people did. And she said, you can go to kindergarten if you want, or I can teach you your colors and shapes and how to use the alphabet and stuff like that, and maybe a little calculus <laughs> um, before we get into first grade. And I said, okay, fine, I'll stay at home. What kid doesn't want to stay at home? In, you know, when you, so I stayed at home and she taught me that, but she taught me some rules of etiquette for the classroom. She said, now when you get to school, you won't be able to just interrupt the teacher anytime you want and start talking. Because if there are 20 or 25 students sitting out there and you're all doing that at the same time, no one will be able to hear anything. For you teachers out there, can I get an amen? That's right. So she taught me that if I needed to say something and if the time was right, I should sit quietly and raise my hand. And if she was not able to speak to me then, she would say something like, I would like to speak to you about this in a few minutes, but I can't right now. Or she would say, thank you for raising your hand, now you may speak. And I thought, this works pretty well, I like this. You can raise my hand, I get to get called on, and this is gonna be cool. Very first day, it, it was so fresh, you could still smell the paint drying on the walls of the school. And you could still taste the paste. Do you remember that white paste that was, oh man. So, <laughs> that's, that's the kind of freshness about this new experience for me. And almost immediately after she got to know our names a little bit, we had our little name tags hanging around our necks that we got out of our cubbies. And then she would sit us around her in a, a couple of rings uh, on the ground, sitting cross-legged, which I can't do anymore, but I used to be able to do that. And then she had this big box of rhythm instruments next to her. Yeah. Some things don't change. I enjoyed making a lot of noise with rhythm instruments in first grade. I kind of still do. <laughs> and so uh, a lot of these students started clamoring for those things and saying, I want to play that one. I want that one. I want that one. And she said, no, wait a minute. And I was sitting in the back row and I had my hand raised. <laughs> and she said, all the rest of you sit back where I put you. Now, because Clark over here is sitting back with his hand raised, he gets to make the first choice. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> they hadn't gotten that memo, apparently, and I found out that there was a feeling of acceptance that just validated me and made, it warmed me from head to toe, not to mention the fact that my teacher was really good looking. <laughs> Kind of my first crush, in a sense. She had to go and marry some old Air Force captain. <laughs> I mean, what did he have that I didn't have? <laughs> Maybe other than the ability to fly a jet. <laughs> but I found that that feeling of validation was important because I wanted to be accepted. One of the things I wanted most of all when I went to first grade was to feel accepted and validated, especially for somebody that I admired, or in this case, loved. I wanted that. We all desire that kind of approval 
And it's innate. It's a part of who we all are. I think it's universal that we all desire approval and validation. We want to be accepted. This is where Paul starts to pick up with how are we accepted. That's what he starts to tell us about in Romans chapter 3. It's a great, eloquent summary that speaks to this ache to be validated in all of us, but he does it at a cosmic theological level. And so when I'm starting to dive into doctrine, I want you to see how practical it is because it's something that grows out of all of us desiring to be accepted somehow. And in this case, the acceptance is being accepted by God himself. His summary is about what's wrong with the world, which we talked about in the growth encounter just a short time ago. When sin entered the world, people started to become self-focused rather than God-focused. Everything started to kind of go to pot, so to speak. But the summary that Paul gives us in Romans 3 is, how can we make that right again? And spoiler alert, we can't. But he can, and he's showing us how he did it. Then, the righteousness. This is a state of approval. If you're going to look at a definition, you can say that righteousness is a sense, a state of approval before God. Now, we don't think of that, but if you think about the same words that are used, the word for righteous in the New Testament is the exact same word for justified. This starts to immediately unpack some good things in our minds as we start to think about that, because righteous is not a word we use very often in our current culture and language, unless perhaps it's thinking back, you know, to, ooh, righteous dude, whoa. Or maybe we know some songs by the Righteous Brothers, and we just think that they're some kind of a cool duo brother band or something. But righteous means justified. So we're thinking about God's righteousness. We usually think about his holiness, his perfection. But really, when it's connected with this word for justified, it means that it is a state of being accepted by God who is holy. That's what gets us started in the right, uh, the right approach. Now, let me try to bring this back to our time so you can see how practical and applicable this really is for us. It's not just some old ancient teaching by Paul. This is something that talks to us today. If we think about a resume, what is a resume? It's something that gives us a record of our performance. Uh, the first time I went to Scotland on an exchange was 19 years ago, and I had uh, emailed the director of the Baptist Scottish Union, which is sort of the counterpart to our denomination here in the U.S., and I asked him if there was another pastor in the country that might want to do an exchange. And he says, well, if you'll send me a curriculum vitae. And I said, I will do that. And then I had to go and look up to see what a curriculum vitae was. And I thought, oh, it's a resume. I got one. I didn't have to make one up. But curriculum vitae it actually comes from Latin. Vitae means life, vital, vitality. And curriculum means a story of, it's a story of your life. It's a synopsis or a short version of a telling of what validates you because of what you've learned in your life or the experiences that you have that would make you accepted into a specific job. It's a door opener. If you have a good resume, it opens doors for you. And Paul is saying, if you have a really good moral resume, it will open the door for you, but you can't get that kind of resume. God has to do it for you. Same thing is true in... Uh, all of Paul's writings, that the validation we get cannot be because of our own efforts. We have no ability in ourselves as humans to be able to earn the right to be validated by God. We don't. We can't do that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Transcript, same thing, only on academic levels. It is like a resume, but for academia. It 
is a course history, so to speak, of the kinds of courses you have taken that would validate that you are now capable of learning at a certain level and that you can take the next level, especially if you're going to be applying for a higher level education degree. You need a transcript. So you got a resume, you got a transcript. These are the records of performance. And Paul is saying, so now in order to be validated or accepted or justified in God's sight, you need to have a record of performance. But where are you going to get that? This is where he introduces something that was so radical to his audience because he starts with, but now. And I'm going to read these verses for you right now. And if you're going to follow along, I'm reading Romans 3, starting at verse 21. Paul says, but now, which indicates there was something prior to this, and he's speaking to an audience that would have been very aware of Pharisaism and legalism and trying to live by the law, trying to validate themselves by doing everything according to Hoyle, so to speak. He says, but now, something different, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, the ability for us to be accepted in his sight, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith. First time you read that. So if you want to circle that, uh, unless you don't want to write in your Bible, in which case you might want to jot it down in your notes, through faith, that's the first time that comes up. That's important. In Jesus Christ, to all who believe. Notice that they didn't say to all, period. He said to all who believe. That's important as well. So I would circle that, who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. It's a level playing field. And all are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What would have happened if you were to grab just verse 24 and ignore what we just talked about when it said all of those who believe? You might think that there's some universalism going on there. That He says, regardless of whether or not you take a step of faith to accept this grace... God has still covered you by the blood, and so everybody's going to go to heaven. Yay! He doesn't say that. That's why it's important for you to circle those other things and look back to them and see them in context. The all he's talking about there points back up to verse 22. Who is the all? It's all of those who have placed their faith in Christ. And it points ahead to what's going to come up in another couple of verses here. Moving ahead. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, through the shedding of his blood, to be received, how? By faith. There's that phrase again. So it's important that this be received by faith. There's some sort of a reception on our part, even though it's offered freely. We can reject it or we can accept it. And how do we re receive that? It's by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, his rightness, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time, meaning right now in his generation, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I would circle, have faith in Jesus. One more time. Can you see the repeating theme that Paul is giving to us here? So let me ask you, are you still tracking with me? Okay, good. So how do we receive this grace that God offers us? By faith. Good for you. You're starting to see that this is important. Verse 27. Where then? We just sang about this in one of our songs. Where then is our boasting? We have nothing to boast about. It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. 
For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So this is where Paul starts to unpack something that for his audience would have been mind-blowing because they had started to erect their own tower of justification and it all hinged on works and law and legalism. And he's saying, but now there's something very different. Very different. It's a new way. It's all by grace. Now, Harold Abrams was that guy in the movie. I love this movie, so I quote from it a lot. Chariots of Fire. You know? Oh, it's a great movie. So Harold Abrams is not the main character. He's a side character, but he's a fellow who's starting to wrestle with his existence. He's got an existential angst. And he's wondering about what validates me in the world. And there's one very poignant scene it's it takes place an hour before he's supposed to run one of his races and it's a race that eric little does not run in i think it's a hundred meter dash and eric is going to actually cheer him on and and he's doing that but he's getting a massage and they're loosening up his muscles in preparation for that race and he's starting to reveal his inner angst to his friend and he says in an hour's time i'm going to raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide and in 10 lonely seconds, that's how long I have to justify my existence. But will I? He's just laid bare exactly what all of us struggle with. How do we justify our existence? It's something we all tempt to do. We get it through having the most likes, or the most laughs, or by becoming uh, the lead in the school play or by getting the highest grade point average if we're academic, or becoming the best dancer on your dance team, or the best lacrosse player, or the best soccer player, or the best basketball player, whatever it is that we're seeking to do, we seek validation so that we can justify our existence. And Paul is speaking to that kind of angst in Romans chapter 3. The reason for our angst is that all of us innately know that we won't measure up. Because of the fall, we all know that all have fallen and fall short of the glory of God. We have that angst because of the fall, and we're trying desperately to find a way for somebody to justify us and to say, you're okay. But unfortunately, because of the way the world attempts to do that, it's just like the Pharisees were trying to do. It's done through performance. I have to perform, and I have to perform at peak levels. Otherwise, I can't really justify my existence, which is why millionaires will say, one more million is all it will take to justify my existence. And it's never enough. The people who have brilliant things in life and they acquire uh, art and things that are expensive will say, another Rolex, if I could just have another Rolex. But it's never enough. All the angst that we have is because of our desire to be accepted and justified. The problem is we try to set our own standard and that doesn't work. Now, this is a... Several pastors removed illustration. I wish I could quote the original source because I would if I had it. But the pastor I heard it from, I'm sure quoted from some other pastor and long back. And then when I looked it up, it's almost become apocryphal because there's, it's been quoted so many times that it's sort of anonymous. But let's say, just for sake, comparison's sake, that we're going to look at Romans 2, which leads up to Romans 3 where we are today. Romans 2 essentially is saying... Uh, we can't rightly judge other people because we're imperfect and God is righteous and just 
And it's okay for him to judge people because he is perfect. He is the standard. And so it's okay for him to judge, even though it's not okay for us to try to judge others. So here's the illustration. It says, what would happen if, in Romans 2 being fleshed out this way, God were to give us a little tiny tape recorder about the size of my little receiver here, and it was invisible, and we could just wear it in our pocket and just forget it. We just even forget it's there. And we're wired for sound, so we have a little lapel mic that's also invisible. But the only time that this thing ever kicks on, it's not when we say Siri or Alexa. <laughs> it's not when we say that. It's only, it only records us when we're starting to tell other people how they ought to live their lives. Okay? So it's recording every time you're trying to set the standard for somebody by saying, this person should do this more often, or you should do this more often, or you shouldn't do that because that's bad for you, or whatever. You get what's going on here? You're setting the standard by what you tell other people they should do to live their lives in order to be accepted by you because of your standard. So then you go to the pearly gates, you stand before God on judgment day. God pulls out the little tape recorder, makes it visible, and says, oh, you've been wearing this. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. Yes, I have. And he said, okay, I'm going to be so fair. I'm going to be so fair. I'm not going to judge you on whether you were able to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to even go into Deuteronomy or all the Mosaic law. Just Not even the Ten. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to judge you based on my standards at all. I'm only going to judge you based on your own standard. How will you know what your standard is? Well, I'm going to play this. And this is what you have set as the standard for being accepted. Let's see how you stack up with your own standard. Click. And he pushes the play button on your little recorder. Oh. How many of us would be able to stack up against the standard we have set for other people? Paul says, nobody. None of us. Because the problem is we think that we're setting the right standard, and yet we fudge that standard all the time. And we wind up doing things exactly the, the same things that we said they shouldn't do, and vice versa. So Paul says, but fortunately, even though we have this angst to be accepted, even though we wonder, well, how can I stand perfect before God if I'm so imperfect, and if all have fallen short of God's glory, how can this angst be resolved? It's called the gospel. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And it's something that I need to unpack for you in two things, because there are two mistakes that we tend to make as modern American evangelicals as to how we think about justification. First of all, justification is so much more than simply being pardoned for a crime. Now, I've used a lot of sermon illustrations to try to convey that we are pardoned for our sins. And that is true. There's truth to that. So I'm not saying that we're not pardoned. But it's so much more than that. Why is it more than that? Because if you're pardoned for a crime, you've just been let off the hook for a consequence. Let's say that I go and rob uh, a thrift store because I needed a new pair of jeans to take to Scotland with me this summer. And I thought, it's just a thrift store. No big deal. It's only 50 cents anyway, but nobody will miss it. And I, it's still wrong, right? Because there's a law. I've broken the standard. So I go before a judge, and the judge is kind. And the judge says, okay, it's just a pair of pants, and it was worth 50 cents. That's what you had to pay. So I'm going to let the consequence go. Give the pants back. That's restitution, and you're pardoned for your crime. No big deal. Okay, that's one thing. 
But you walk away from the judge, and all you've done is just you feel relieved because you don't have the consequence anymore. Whereas the kind of justification God is talking about is he's not only giving you the lack of consequence from the negative side of that fence, but from the positive side of justification, he's heaping honor upon you and saying, now come into my presence, and I want to share all of my rewards with you, which is so much more than just being pardoned for our crimes. You could be pardoned for a big crime. Let's say that I, was, I robbed a bank and I stole 50 million bucks, and I was still pardoned. Well, I would have had to do time for that, clearly. I would have had to go to prison for that. And if the judge said, I pardon you, you don't have to go to prison, I would feel so free, but I still get to walk away from that judge and never have to see that judge again. The father says, not only are you pardoned for the crime, I've paid the penalty for you, but I want to choose you as my treasured child. Come into my house. Everything I've got is available to you as well. See how much more it is than just being pardoned for a crime? That was the whole parable of the prodigal son. That son had done nothing other than just recognizing that he was a heel and saying, I don't even deserve to be in your presence. That was okay. That was enough. And the father met him as he was going back home and said, okay, come on in. Kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. My son has returned home. Everything that's mine belongs to him as well. Older brother didn't think that was so cool. Older brother were those legalists and the Pharisees. Justification also, this is the second thing that we tend to make a mistake about as evangelicals when we think about justification. It's so much more than being made merely morally good. Why would that be a problem? Because if we're made merely morally good, then all of a sudden we start to slide back into that negative cycle of feeling like, okay, well, I need to measure up to this and I fear punishment by God. And that's what's going to keep me right with God because I'm going to be morally good because I don't want to get slapped up. It tends to have a negative connotation and there's a lot of folks and different kinds of traditions of spirituality today that still will teach that, oh man, if you say that bad word that comes out of your, your mouth as you're going into that car crash and you die, that if you haven't gotten forgiven for that, you're sunk. Too bad for you. And there are other kinds of things that will creep into our subconsciousness about what we believe about God and how we are justified before him. And so it becomes another hint at legalism that starts to creep back into our lives again. And we, we develop this awkward, awful, negative cycle of repentance. Whew, I'm so glad I repented. I'm okay now for the time being. I'm good for now. And then a couple of days later, we've done something else. We're going, oh no, I haven't been morally good, so I need to repent again. And we're constantly doing that for fear of punishment. And he says, no, no, I've completely removed the fear of punishment for you because I took your punishment. See, I did that already for you, so now you can live as though you're simply loving me back because you don't, you don't have to pay me back. In fact, if we were to try to add anything to what he's doing, and we're going to look at that some next week as well, it negates all of what he's done for us, and it cheapens grace. Uh, here's an, an example. I, had, I didn't have this in my notes, but I read it a while back, and I think it makes sense. Let's say that there are two boys. One goes swimming in a lake. Uh, the other boy is a good swimmer, sees the guy floundering in the lake, and so this other boy, the swimmer, swims out to try to rescue his friend. In a strange and difficult reversal of fortune, the good swimmer kid winds up drowning even though the other kid makes it safely to shore. 
And both the families of those boys are on the shore watching this take place. So the father of the kid who was saved feels such gratitude, and yet there's mixed emotions. But he goes up to the father who lost his son because his son died in his son's place, so to speak. And he looks in his wallet and he goes, man, there's no way I can adequately express to you how bad I feel and how much I appreciate what your son did for mine because your son lost his life to bring my son life. But I've got $57 here. It's everything I've got. Let me give this as a token of my appreciation for what your son did. Wow. Doesn't that cheapen what his son did? And in a sense, if we try to do anything to pay God back, we cheapen the grace that cost Christ everything. We need not cheapen that. We can't pay him back. It's impossible. Any tiny little thing we might do has nothing to do with paying him back, which is why the motive has to be completely changed, and we'll see that in a second as well. The danger then is if we think of it as being morally good, we start sliding into faith plus works. And a lot of people still have that mentality, even though they won't say they do. They'll quote from other passages and say, no, I know that it's not by works, lest any man should boast. They'll quote that, but in reality, they start living as though they still have to do things to work their way into being accepted by God. We have to fight that tendency by coming back to Romans 3 and acknowledging that it's really only because of what Christ did for us. And then he says this, same guy, Paul, in 2 Corinthians, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. He's the propitiation. He's the one who credits our account with his righteousness, even though we were bankrupt spiritually. Now, Here's another great analogy. I like this one, too. This one goes way back. Probably World War II is when it was first, because you don't see a lot, a lot of these. Do you know what kind of car that is? A Rolls Royce. That's right. So there's this guy. He's a wealthy man. Uh, maybe I'll save this analogy to be able to preach when I'm over in the UK, because this is an English automobile, a fine, exquisite, well-engineered automobile. And there was a very wealthy Englishman who was driving this kind of car, and he's going to go on holiday which in American means a vacation. And he loads up his Rolls Royce on a ferry to take it across the English Channel to France and then to drive through Europe on this vacation. Maybe he's going to go see some of Spain sometime soon. We would hope so. And partway through Europe, the car breaks down. And he doesn't know what to do because they don't have Rolls Royce dealerships in Europe. This is an English car, and it was back when English... Cars were on England's soil, and that was about it. He didn't know quite what to do. So he goes to a telegraph office. This is how old the illustration is. He goes to the uh, Western Union telegraph office. I don't think they had Western Union in Europe. And he tells the guy to cable the offices of Rolls-Royce and to tell them, I'm stranded here in Europe, and I don't know what the problem is. What should I do? Please respond. And they cable back almost immediately with great customer service. And he says, we're sending a mechanic on the next plane. He'll be there shortly. So they send a, a mechanic all the way from England across the pond into Europe. He shows up. He finds the problem, fixes it, right as rain, good as new. Bob's your uncle. And then 
He hops on a plane, and the mechanic flies back to England, but he doesn't even leave the guy a bill. So this guy goes on about his vacation, his holiday, and he's, he's thinking, whew, that's going to be pricey. I wonder what this is going to set me back. He says, I'm surprised they didn't say anything about that. So he finishes his vacation, he goes back home, and then he writes a letter, because that's what people used to do back then. He didn't Twitter it. <laughs> he, go, he writes this actual letter, and he sends it to the president of Rolls-Royce, and he says, um, I'm so happy and so glad that your mechanic came out and fixed my problem. Thank you so much. But I'm uh, a bit perplexed because I don't know how much this is going to cost. Please inform me about what it's going to cost for the mechanic to have fixed my problem. Thank you very much. And he gets a letter back in a few days. And the letter from the president says, Dear Sir, we have examined our files, and we have nothing in our files that would show that anything has ever gone wrong with the Rolls Royce. <laughs> Do you see the connection? God says to us, after Jesus Christ takes our place on the cross, I've looked up my files, and there is nothing here to indicate that there is anything that's ever gone wrong morally with this person standing before me. Whoa. Clean slate. He's borne the burden. He's paid the price. We stand clean before him. That's justification. And that's mind-blowing because it completely wipes away all this legalism that can start with us trying to be morally good and ending with us being legalistic and judgmental toward everybody else because we set ourselves up as the standard and then we fail because of the whole recorder and microphone analogy. If I'm justified, then why do I have to be good? Here's one good question to examine, and then we're going to close. If somebody says to me, a skeptic would say, okay, wait a minute, though, pastor. If I've been justified, if God has cleansed me from all my sins, then what incentive do I have to be good? And I would say to them, well, if you think that your only incentive to be good is fear of punishment, that's no way to live your life in fear. And the Bible tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. And when we understand what God has done for us because of his love for us, then we realize that we're just loving him back. We're not paying him back. And the goodness flows so naturally out of us that it's not forced. It's not because of a fear of punishment. It's because of goodness that God gives to all of us. It's an incredible thing to think about that because in a sense... If we're operating, doing good works out of a fear of punishment, it's really, in a way, strangely selfish. It's done to keep me out of hot water. It's not done because I genuinely want to help that other person. And strangely, we can start to become inward thinking. This takes us back to what you were talking about, Steve, just a little while ago. Instead of being God-focused and looking at how huge His love for us is and doing things out of our love and a response to Him, we start thinking mostly about ourselves. And you can get a lot of people who are tyrants. And it's happened in history. Some of the worst tyrants in history thought they were moral people. But they were thinking only about themselves. And I've done all these things. I've checked all the boxes. And I'm morally upright. But that person, ooh, we're going to excommunicate that person because he didn't measure up to my standard. You see how it can get this vicious cycle. So it can't be focused about us. That's why we have to eradicate Fear of punishment as the motivation for doing good works. And we're going to talk about that next week from James. But I'm going to wrap up with a challenge to our world changers because what I realize is that on the world changers mission trips that I've been on, 
there are times when we have to examine our motives. Because it gets to be tough. The sun's beating down on you. You're up on that roof trying to do some shingles. And whew, you're thinking, now, why did, why did we sign up for this again? And if you have the right motive for that, then you'll know that you're serving Jesus. That everything you're doing is serving the true master. He's your real boss. And whether or not anybody says thank you or pat you on the back, that's really not why you're doing that. Because otherwise that can become selfishly motivated. C.S. Lewis understood the dichotomy with that. He'd say, basically, this is paraphrased, if you think you're good, you're not. If you think your good works are good, they're not. If you think your goodness is filthy rags, then your good works are good. And basically, in a couple of his works, you could read him and he's saying, that's what helped him understand faith and put his faith in Christianity and Jesus Christ because he said, no human being could have thought that up. <laughs> That's got to be a weird reversal that can only come from God himself. If we realize, that was the term from Paul, the filthy rags things. He says, my goodness is like filthy rags. It's disgusting before God. And God says, the only reason we can do anything good for somebody else is because of what Christ did for me. And I'm only responding out of gratitude for him. My focus is totally on God. It's not on myself. And that's when it starts that upward cycle that brings God glory we don't care who gets the glory. We don't care if we have any pat on the back. We don't care if we get any kind of spotlight because of what we've done. We're just simply doing it because we have nothing to lose. If I could do something and do it in secret and help somebody out and nobody ever finds out about it, no big deal. Why is that? Because I'm really helping God. I'm thanking Him. Because we can't earn living water points. I know that comes as a shock to you. But that's completely against what Paul is teaching in Romans 3. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is a topsy-turvy concept because the world keeps throwing stuff at us to try to make us feel like we have to do so much in order to be accepted. And I pray that we will, uh, as difficult as it is, I pray that we will start to grasp how deep and high and wide and fathomless is your love for us because you did all that on our behalf because you just desire a relationship with us and you are the reward ultimately your presence is our greatest reward and so we just want to love you back and whatever good works emanate from us we want them to be motivated because of our love for you not because we can pay you back not because we have a standard of righteousness that we're imposing on other people but simply because of grace and we just receive that by faith and I thank you and we pray that you're going to continue to help us to grow in that awareness even over this next two weeks. And I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said.